Five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. My name is Dee Moore, and I am a stage four kidney warrior. This podcast is dedicated to encourage, educate, and inspire as we explore all aspects of kidney disease, chronic illnesses, and health. If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like me to cover, please get in contact with me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. In today's episode, we are talking about living organ donation. And joining me today is my guest, Lisa Benas, who is clinical lead for living donation at NHS Blood and Transplant. We discuss why living donation is important, we address common fears, we discuss non-directed, directed, paired and pulled donation, and the benefits, and more. Hi and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior, the podcast. How are you doing today, Lisa? Very well, thank you. Good, good. Well, I'm really happy to, and it's an honour to have you today. This interview is part of the transplant series where I'm talking to kidney warriors about their transplant stories and I'm talking to professionals in their field. We had an interview about deceased donation and today we're talking about living donation. So as there are organs available via deceased donation, why is living donation so important? Well, of course, not everybody will always get matched to a deceased donor organ, and there isn't always enough organs to go around. So there are two reasons. But the real reason why living donation is so important is that actually the quality of those transplants is is fantastically good for the recipient. So if you think about kidney transplants, um, really the best chance of the very, very best outcome from a kidney transplant is actually from a living donor transplant. Now, that isn't to say, actually, that the success rate of, of, of kidney transplants isn't actually very good across the board. But if you just really want to look at the difference in the, in the outcomes, then for a patient, if you are going to make a choice completely, you know, level playing field, a living donor kidney is the one that you'd want to choose. It's the Rolls Royce of kidneys, if you like, because, of course, it comes from a healthy person in a planned way and so on. So there's that clinical side of it, but actually at a at a life sort of side of it, there's from, from the patient and the family, the opportunity to actually plan something about kidney disease is really quite critical. Um, and I haven't walked in the shoes of somebody with kidney disease waiting for a transplant on dialysis, but I can imagine that Actually, it's very pretty difficult to to do the things that you want to do in your life with the restrictions of dialysis, even though people are very resourceful and they work around those. The real thing about a living donor transplant is that you can plan it. And actually, if you start talking about it early enough in your in, and you have an opportunity to do that as a kidney patient, you can even avoid going on to dialysis and have a transplant instead. So there are quite a few added benefits that are really about the quality of the transplant and quality of life actually and and that's what it comes down to is 
we could show all sorts of data that says, well, there's very little difference between this outcome or that outcome. But if you're a patient waiting for a transplant and you can plan it and you can do that alongside the person who's donating to you, that's a massive advantage in your life. I can see because uh, I remember from my interview with Lucy, she was saying that diseased organ donation, there's a time limit to how long it is before the organs can't be used and that there's a really small window of people that are actually suitable to become a donor. So I can I can see straight away the advantage of having a living donor where you're not worrying about the organ not being able to be used and etc. So all of those kind of other factors are removed and and yes, yeah, I can absolutely see the advantage of that. So just rewinding slightly You've mentioned kidney donation. Are there any other organs that you can donate as a living donor? Well, there are there are other organs you can donate. Um, I'm going to keep to what we do in here in the UK. Um, so kidneys are mostly what people donate. Um, so kidneys from living donors make up about 97% of what we do. And the other 3% of people give a lobe of a liver, either a slightly smaller lobe to a child or a slightly larger lobe um, to an adult. Most of the living donor liver transplant activity in the UK is to children. Um, and there's a small proportion of adults who receive a kidney, uh, who receive a liver, I should say, from, from a living donor. But most, most are children at the moment. But, you know, we are hoping to make that more accessible for people waiting for a liver transplant. But of course, there are different things to consider between different organs. And, and always that the critical thing is, you know, the, these, the safety, the, the, that risk benefit analysis. So the benefit to the recipient from receiving that organ and the, the risk weighed up against the risk to the donor to a certain extent. So if you're, um, for example, a willing donor and you're considering donating a lobe of your liver, um, if you donate a large part of your liver, as you would need to for an adult to have a, a decent sized piece of liver to receive a, a successful transplant, then that's a, a slightly bigger decision than it is if you're giving away a smaller lobe of your liver to a child. So there are different considerations. That's just one example. So as I say, the majority of people give a kidney, and that's partly because it's pretty well established in the UK, living donor liver trans uh, living donor kidney transplantation now. Um, and actually, we, we sort of have a spare kidney. I mean, that's being a little bit simplistic, and we'll probably talk a bit more about that in a, in a little while. But, but if somebody is safely assessed and, and you know, they're, they're a suitable donor, then actually giving away a kidney shouldn't have an impact on their life um, in any way. Um, so, so this is, you know, so those are the two organs, really, that, that we focus on in the UK. It is possible to donate um, lobes of lung. Um, and again, that's, you know, that, that presents different levels of risk for the, for the donor and different benefits and different outcomes for the recipient. So all these things have to be weighed up in part of the sort of big picture of, of living donation. So in terms of kidney donation, do you have to be related to be a living donor? You don't actually, no. Um, and that's not something that people always know. Um, and I think that's because historically people have been related. I mean, Living kidney donation started primarily from, you know, parents wanting to 
help their children if they they ended up with 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 kidney disease where they needed a transplant and then you know typically brothers sisters um and so on even um relationships for example if you're an adult child and you wanted to give to a parent that was more unusual historically um but all those all those family type of relationships have you know you, you can understand sort of the 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 kind of motivation that might sit behind that um so traditionally those were the relationships but in 2006 the law changed in the UK under the human tissue acts and it made other options possible um so prior to that probably the most the distant relationship you might had have, have with um with your recipient would be a very close friend so if you weren't related by blood you were related by emotion if you like so you could have husbands wives and so on after the human tissue act came in it opened up the possibilities for um for different relationships so in fact you could step forward and just anonymously donate to someone in need of a kidney transplant on the waiting list for example and that's called non-directed altruistic donation and we I know we'll we'll talk about that in a little while um but the other thing that that uh law change made possible was possible for different combinations of transplants to be um carried out so if um i wanted to donate to somebody but actually um i wasn't compatible with them either because my blood group wasn't appropriate for them or what we call the hla type the tissue type um wasn't compatible between the two of us then i might be able to receive a transplant from somebody else in a similar position or donate to someone else in a similar position and they they receive a transplant through a through a sort of an exchange and again we'll talk about that in a little bit of time but um that's known as paired donation or pooled donation where you sort of match pairs together um so the human tissue act really opened up those possibilities of different relationships and since then we've you know so you can be a family member related by blood you can be a family member or a friend uh with an emotional a close emotional relationship or you can be a complete stranger actually to somebody um and and still donate um anonymously to those individuals very powerful um, and precious gift to be able to to give to someone so as you've mentioned about non-directed altruistic donation let's talk a bit more about that what exactly is non-directed altruistic donation and how do you go about doing that yeah so it's a very good point i think i think this has been an unexpected bonus ball in our living donor program i mean i don't think we really expected people to come forward in large numbers and say i want to donate to someone in need but the the population in the uk are extraordinarily altruistic actually um and we've now had over 800 people do this across the uk um wow which is an enormous number and actually is one of the world leading programs for for non-directed altruistic donation um so how has that happened well there was um i think in the beginning it took a little while for people to be aware that that they could do this and then as you say how do you go about it um and now we have a much better system for doing that so if you just were motivated generally people are motivated by hearing something like this um reading a magazine or generally a human story that sort of resonates with them in some way um if you were to go on to the um nhs blood and transplant website 
um, and you look at the become a living donor bit and you'd find a, a whole lot of information related to whether or not you want to donate a kidney or, or, or a, um, a lobe of liver. Generally, these, these donors, again, donate a kidney. Um, and you, you can look at all that information and decide whether it's the right thing for you. And that's the really important thing, because actually um, it has to be the right thing for you. And that's only the first step, because getting that information allows you to kind of form some sort of decision in your head. You might want to talk to other people. Um, one of the fantastic groups of people who came to the fore as a result of this program are the Give a Kidney charity. Um, and um, if you just put the three W's in giveakidney.org, you'll find them. And they're really basically a group of people who've donated in this way. And they've done an enormous amount in the UK to raise awareness, raise the profile of this kind of donation. But really importantly, are there as people who have done it and been through it, who can talk to donors who are considering doing it. And and the likelihood is that within that group of people, you'd find somebody of your own age or with your own experience who you could talk to, which is enormously valuable. So you could do all that research yourself. And then on the NHSBT website, there's a, what we call an expression of interest. And, and that allows you to email directly to a transplant centre where they will do the kind of, you know, they, they, they're the filter, if you like. So you express your interest, say, I'm interested in doing this. Could you possibly contact me? And then in every transplant centre, there's a dedicated living donor team. And one of those specialist nurses would call you back um, or email you, depending upon your preference, um, and discuss with you what was involved. And, and there's quite a detailed, for any living donor, there's a detailed medical assessment process and preparation for donation. And it would it's all tailored you know, there are obviously things, steps you have to go through, but it's all tailored to that individual and what's important for that individual. And that's how you would initiate the process. And then once you've been through that detailed assessment process, um, you would then be, if you wish to proceed and you were suitable to proceed, um, you'd have to go to, through a, a sort of a legal approval process for the, which is required by the Human Tissue Authority. And then you would be able to be registered as a donor um, and then, we can talk more about that process in a moment, but that's the way that you would go about it. And it's very similar to how you would go about it if you were thinking of donating to a relative. I think the only difference is that when you know of someone in your family or in your close group of friends who needs a, a kidney or, or, or a transplant, you're likely to sort of speak to them about it and then they will put you directly in touch with the team that are looking after them. Whereas if you're coming from the sort of the big outside world, if you like, it's a question of where do I begin? Go to the website, look at the information. Is this something that you think in your mind that might be for you? And you're not committing to anything by contacting a transplant centre. You're not committing to anything at all until you sign your name and you go to theatre. But that will get you into the process. When it comes to altruistic donation, is that always to a stranger? Is that specifically referring to donation to someone you don't know? Or is that to anyone? I'm, I'm just trying to kind of get the distinction when it comes to the difference. Yes, the terminology is difficult, isn't it? And actually, I'm not sure that we've got it at all right, but it's what's in the law and that's what we use. So that word altruistic is problematic, actually, because there is a level of altruism in everybody who donates the kidney. You know, there's a spectrum of altruism from if you're giving to your child, OK, you might feel an obligation to your child, but actually you're still there is still something about that act that has a has a level of altruism about it. You're not doing it for your own benefit. And that's true of all living donors. So actually, even the 
altruistic donors, the giver kidney donors, um, find that terminology quite difficult. And so we've sort of moved more towards the terminology of non-directed um, because non-directed means that you're, you're not, it isn't directed to a, an individual you know, it's, it's directed to somebody that you don't know. So what we use here in Europe, you'll, in the rest of Europe, you'll find that they use terminology like unspecified donation, which was a term that was agreed within the European society that they thought was preferable, but it means the same thing. Basically, you are donating anonymously to another individual who is in need of a transplant. And that is the purpose of you donating. I see. There, um, just, just for absolute clarity, because people will read about these things. And if you go onto the website, all the information's there. But there's another confusing category called directed altruistic donation. Um, and that's a little bit different. Um, and there's some distinctions about that. But primarily, that is when you, for example, find that somebody's put an appeal on social media that they need a kidney transplant. Um, and somebody thinks, I'd like to give my kidney to that person, but they've never met that person before, but they get to know that person as a result of, of their need for a transplant. So that's, a, that's an example of what we call directed altruistic, which is, it is a spontaneous act of I'll give to you, but actually it's directed towards a person. Um, and that can relate to social media, it can relate to someone who is a friend of a friend of a friend, a very removed relationship, an estranged family member who you haven't seen for years, those sort of categories. So, so that's another category. So we have a lot of terminology, unfortunately, which is a little bit difficult to unpick sometimes. But if you're giving to a member of your family, you're giving to your friend, that is a straightforward, directed donation. You know the person, you're, you, you have a relationship with them, either emotionally or by blood, and that's called directed. Then you've got the, I've met this person because I know they need a transplant. That's the directed altruistic. And then I don't know anybody specifically, but I just want to give to somebody who I can help. That's the non-directed. And that's the term that we're tending to use a little bit more. So the altruistic bit is interesting because it has so many different connotations when you when you bring in the concept of altruism. That makes it a, a lot more clearer. I get that now. So you mentioned about the paired or poor donation. Yes. So let's talk about that. So what is that? Okay, how does it work? Right. Well, the original concept of paired, pooled, um, and again, in other countries, you'll hear it called things like kidney exchange programs. So it's, it's all the same sort of thing. Um, so this is this idea that you have um, a person, a recipient, should we call them a transplant recipient in need of a kidney transplant, and you have somebody willing to donate to them. So say it's your a brother and a sister pair. Um, but for some reason, they, the original concept of this was they'd like to donate, for some reason they're not, they're not compatible with that individual. And that may be because the recipient has been previously transplanted and has seen somebody else's DNA, so they have antibodies. You've probably had those conversations before. Um, so um, they may have antibodies through having seen somebody else's um, DNA through a transplant, through a pregnancy, through a blood transfusion. So it will be, are there antibodies in the recipient that when that particular person donates their kidney, there's a risk that that kidney will be accepted by that person. So that's really critical to a, the success of a transplant. And so the donor has to 
So it, what we call that is having donor-specific antibodies. So if the recipient has donor-specific antibodies, you wouldn't really want to do that transplant across that kind of barrier. Or if they have very different blood groups. So blood group O could donate to anybody because you can donate as a blood group O person, you can donate to anybody safely. But if your blood group O recipient and your donor happens to be blood group A, that's more complicated. That doesn't work that way around. Um, so the alternative to, um, to this is what we used to have was something called antibody removal. So we would look at ways of removing the antibodies from the recipient's blood to make it a safe, to bring them to a sufficiently low level that it makes it safe to do the transplant from the donor that they would like to have a donation from. Um, but that's quite intrusive. There's, that requires quite a lot of treatment. And the outcome of those transplants is generally not quite as good, particularly if it's the antibodies due to the, you know, not the blood group antibodies, but the other kind, the HLA kind of antibodies, the tissue type antibodies. So although patients might, we might choose that option, it's a compatible transplant is always our preferred choice or, a, or something where it's quite easy to, to organise those antibodies to, to a level where they're safe. So what the, the paired pooled part of this does is if you've got a pair like that um, and there are lots of other pairs around the country who are also in the same position, they all go into a pool called, well, it's called the kidney sharing scheme. And I'll talk a little bit more about that just now. Um, so you put them into that group and then every, well, four times a year, so every three months, all of the pairs in that pool we put all their information into a, into a very clever computer program that was devised with the help of our computer science colleagues in, uh, in Glasgow University, David Manlove and his team. And they go into that computer algorithm. And what that algorithm does is to sort out combinations of compatible transplants, either two pairs together or three pairs together. So if you have a two pair combination identifier, that's called paired donation. And if you have a three pair, it's called pooled. So um, in the practicality of a transplant is if you've got two pairs, so you've got donor and recipient pair one and donor and recipient pair two matched together. So each of the donors donates and each of the recipients receives a kidney from the opposite part of the exchange. So you've got a crossover, if you like. And some programs are actually called that a crossover program or an exchange program. Um, we call it sharing because kidneys are being shared. So that's why we call it the sharing scheme in the UK. So that's paired is two couples, pooled is three or more, but that, that was where it started. Now there are some nuances to that because it started with, if I'm incompatible with my recipient, then I would go, I could go into that pool. Um, if a recipient has more than one donor that offers a different selection criteria, if you like, they, they can go into the pool, they can go into the sharing scheme with two donors if they want to. So they doubles their chances. Well, not literally, but, you know, it increases their chances of being matched. The other thing that you can do is if you're if you're a small person, you know, if you're a child um, and the only suitable donor that you have in your family is your grandmother and there's a big age gap, you might choose to go into the scheme for a closer age match because for a child, 
obviously they may they're likely to need another transplant during their lifetime so you'd want to get a compatible transplant but with the closest age match you could so for example um you might find children who go in and we you would could request a kidney with a maximum age match which you know whatever would be suitable or you might go in um because you have the way the match the hla tissue type match that you have with your um donor and recipient is very different one from the other and you want if you're a younger person and you might need another transplant in future you'd want to limit the risk of developing antibodies to a future donor so you'd want to get a closer match so you could go into the scheme and get a closer match so there are all these different nuances that we can work within the scheme and the final thing is those non-directed altruistic donors that we talked about and what they do is they join the scheme and for the last two years all of those non-directed donors have gone into the scheme unless there's a a high priority recipient on the kidney waiting list who for them their, that kidney would be their golden ticket kidney um, and if that's the case then the donation will go to that individual but otherwise those non-directed donors will go into the sharing scheme the same computer matching algorithm and they would then create what we call chains of transplants so great thing about the non-directed donor is that they don't have a recipient attached to them they can give to anybody who's compatible with them so they are identified with a recipient and in the pool the donor for that recipient then donates to another recipient in the pool and then the joy of this bit is that somebody on the waiting list always gets the end of that chain so the chain completes with a patient on the waiting list and those are called altruistic donor chains Maybe we should call them non-directed chains, but they're called altruistic donor chains. Um, so in that kidney sharing scheme, you've got your pairs in twos, your pairs in threes, pools in threes, and you've got chains either with one donor recipient pair in the middle or two donor recipient pairs in the middle. So it's quite a complicated scheme, but what it does is generate lots of transplants that might not have otherwise happened for those particular individuals. Sounds very complicated. And for want of a better comparison, it almost reminds me of when people are buying a house and mm -hmm. they've got that kind of, you know, the, the chain of different people. So it kind of reminds me of that kind of thing. I know it's not the best comparison, but it's no, I think that's a. I I always like things that people suggest as comparisons. So I think it makes it much easier to understand. And and I agree with you. I think it's complicated to understand. And um, that makes it nice, doesn't it? That chain reaction, if you like, somebody's buying a house from somebody else and they sell on. Yes, I like that idea. Um, and I think that you know it it's really understanding that sort of. There's always a, a kind of a reciprocity, if you like. There's always a I give away, but I get in return. Um, and one of the things that you know people used to say in the beginning was, well, I want my donor to give to me. But the reality of that is that your donor is still giving in order to make a transplant possible for you. Um, or if you think about it in relation to the deceased donor waiting list, you, you don't know where your kidney is coming from in that instance. You don't know when you're getting a non-directed altruistic donation where that kidney is coming from. So 
it, it, it's just really about mindset. And what we've seen is a real philosophical shift, actually, in the last 10 years, 10, 12 years in this scheme. So when we started it in April 2007, we had uh, nine um, pairs and we identified one two-way exchange, one paired exchange. And now we identify between, and it varies depending upon who's in the pool, but we identify anything between 85 and 100 transplants in every matching run. So you wow. can see how over the years, how this has benefited. Um, I know we're going to talk about people from a different, um, from different backgrounds later, and, and I, I can discuss it then. But, but actually, the other really lovely thing about this scheme is that it has really benefited people from Black, Asian, mixed race, minority ethnic groups. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in a later part of the podcast. Well, let's explore that now. So when it comes to people from BAME communities, I am aware that there are lower numbers of living donors coming forward. And um, maybe we can kind of discuss the reasons why you think that might be the case. But yes, let's explore that. So when it comes to people from BAME communities, I'm aware that when it comes to deceased donation, um, these patients wait longer for transplants. So I would assume this would be the same case when it comes to living donation as well? It, it's complicated, as you say, Dee. And, and I'm, I'm speaking the expertise that I've learned from others, if I'm being honest. Um, and, and my experience comes from the people who, on, who are part of these communities, and they talk to me about what the real issues are. So I'll try and do justice to their, those conversations. Um, the first thing to say is that the kidney offering scheme because we are basically talking about kidneys here when we're talking about the, if I can use the word BAME, but I'm encompassing all of those groups that I previously described. So yes. black, Asian, mixed race, minority ethnic. Um, so, so in people from those backgrounds, um, historically, you're quite right, they have waited longer on the waiting list. But actually, the kidney offering scheme has been considerably um, revised over the last few years and the latest revision was in September 2019 and it was specifically to ensure that there was better access and equality over the waiting list for kidney transplant. So that's the first thing I want to say because those long waiting patients as we call them and that's the group that BAME people fall into mm -hmm. um, needed you know that is one of the things we really wanted to address. So living donation so there are people who are such experts in the field. I'm almost, um, you know, I'm almost um, sort of feel slightly an imposter talking about this, but, but I'll try and, as I say, reflect the things that they say. So one of the things we know is an issue is trust. And, um, and it's trusting that, um, that they're in safe hands and that if they step forward and volunteer to donate, that it's going to all be done in the right way um, by people who may be running those programs that are not from the same communities and so on. So there's, there's and having those detailed conversations with people. So it's complex. Um, and we've done a, a considerable amount of work in collaboration with the National Bain Bond Alliance and other um, charitable partners over the last few years 
through living transplant initiatives to try and focus um, activities and interventions towards communities in a way that actually reaches those communities in a way that makes sense to them. So these may be faith-based initiatives because different faiths have different beliefs and so on. Um, and I'm going to use an example. So if we go back to our non-directed altruistic donors, 99% of them are white. Um, and um, at one time, certainly, the average age of a non-directed altruistic donor was around 50. And there was a definite um, increase in the proportion of, of people who donated between the ages of 50 and 85. Um, and and that's about 50 year old age group was quite a sort of a thing. And then there was a much younger age group. And in the in-between decades, people are doing other things with their lives. So they're not maybe doing that so much. But 99% were white. Now, that was quite telling because we wanted to understand that. And through one of the people who I particularly um, uh, have been associated with, um, you may have come across somebody called Della Idowo. And she, she set up a, a group um, called the Gift of Living Donation. Um, and Della highlighted why people from her particular black community probably wouldn't donate in that way, but would be very more willing, not, not necessarily very, but more willing to consider donation within families. So that and and although there are a few more Asian non-directed donors, not many. So we know that we know that there are differences in the way people donate, and that's fine. So what we want to then do is to say, okay, well, what is the most likely way to engage with people around their families and so on? Um, and I'm sure that we haven't got it quite right yet, but I think we are working on that agenda. And I think it's just that we need to develop those trusting relationships. People need to feel that they can trust the people who are caring for them to do what's in their best interest and the best interest for the person they're donating to. So that that that's very important. But there are also some fundamental differences between different ethnicities as well. So we know that diabetes, hypertension, um, things, underlying medical conditions that can cause kidney disease in themselves are also more prevalent in certain people from certain backgrounds. So you can't put everybody in a single basket and say, this is you. But what we can say is, okay, we need to differentiate between those things. So what you will probably find is when people come forward, if you develop those trusting relationships and they volunteer to be considered, then it's possible that a higher proportion of them, for reasons of safety, would not be suitable to proceed to donation. But, but that they're thinking about it is really important. So those are, that's the other underlying thing. So you've got the and, and it's very nuanced and, and it's generational and it's faith-based and it's community-based. So there are all those different, different reasons. To take all of that back, I think what we want to do is to develop the, the best ways of engaging with people, developing their trust and talking them through the options that they think might be best for them. So I think that that's really, really important. Because living donation comes down to the fact that it's got to be the right decision for the donor. Now, very often that may differ from the feeling of the recipient as well. The recipient may say, I don't want to put my loved one through that. Perfectly natural response. And then it's for the donor to say, well, actually, you can say that, but actually, I would like to do this for you. So how you meet that conversation in the middle. And that's true across the board. 
I mentioned earlier, so I'll just come back to it, the benefit that we have seen from the kidney sharing. So that was quite unexpected, really. But when I think about it now, probably makes sense. So before all the non-directed donors went into the kidney sharing scheme itself, in the very beginning, to keep life simple, and because we didn't really know how many of these donors we were going to have, they were um, offered to recipients on the waiting list in the same way as deceased donor kidneys. So when, when somebody came forward as a non-directed donor and they were registered for donation, they would just, not just, but they would donate to a single recipient on the waiting list. That's how the system worked. Um, and then gradually we introduced the idea of, of the chains from sort of about five, six years ago, and we've enhanced that. Now, the, in the beginning then, quite a lot of those patients who've been waiting for a long time on the waiting list received a non-directed donor kidney. And quite a lot of those people who've been waiting a long time were from our BAME backgrounds. So that's why I think we saw that. But in the sharing scheme itself, now those non-directed donors are going in, it doesn't, their donation is not dependent on their BAME background or their non-BAME background, it's dependent on their matchability or their suitability for the recipient in the pool. So what we're seeing is that through those chains, we're initiating transplant opportunities for people from BAME backgrounds, from those from non-BAME backgrounds, that makes sense. So we're seeing around a quarter of the transplants that happen in the kidney sharing scheme are um, going to um, people from a BAME background which was a lovely side effect that we hadn't expected to see. So it's another way of increasing the transplant opportunities. So how I would take that back to our BAME communities would be to say, well, look, actually, it's not just about you can benefit your loved one, the person that you love and care about, by being one of these people as well. So if you do just donate in a non-directed way, it will have a knock-on effect through a chain reaction, if you like, um, in the scheme. So all of this, I think we're learning and all of this we're beginning to convey to, to, our, to the people we interact with. Um, but there's a lot of, lot of messages there and it's quite complicated again, isn't it, to, to sort of convey that. Um, so as you see, it's not a short answer, um, but it is about people feeling that they can we are better at engaging with people in a way that we make things understandable and we gain their trust. That's a, a really comprehensive answer. There's so much in there. And to hear that actually the shared scheme has opened up more opportunities for people who would have to have had waited much longer if they didn't have that option, I really see the benefit of that. And we yeah, really do encourage people to do some research have a chat with your family members have this conversation and um, yeah see how this can be moved forward and yeah the trust issue is something that seems to be coming up a lot when it comes to talking about mm. communities and I think having conversations like this hopefully will start to you know open up more conversation and more opportunities and um, yeah I, I would hope so. And to, to grow trust. I mean, as I say, I'm not the expert here. Um, there are people who I have worked with um, and have worked with me, I should say, really, um, to for me to get a better understanding of this. And they're the people who really relate to um, 
to people from a BAME background. And they're the people who have produced faith-based resources, um, educational materials that are all hosted on the NHSBT website. On the NHSBT website, there's a there's an area where it says get involved. And on there, there's a lot of resources that were actually produced through the Living Transplant Initiative, through the engagement of the project leaders who were within their communities in different faith-based groups. And there's a lot of other work that people are doing to they realise the things that are working within their own communities that they might not otherwise have, have put into place because they've tried something, it's not been so successful, so they've tried something else. Um, but what is really nice is that that this work is going on and um, and it's, you know, it, it it's people are reaching out to people in need and and this is, you know, you've said several times, this is, these are complicated conversations. You know, these are not, they're not um, your everyday kind of things that you're going to be talking about. So actually you need people to spend time with you who will understand the particular things that might worry you um, and might be on your mind. Um, I'm probably not the best person many times, but there are lots of people out there who are really good, really good at doing this. And, um, and they're, you know, if you go onto the website, you will discover them. Thank you. So we've talked about, you know, how you become a donor and you mentioned about what's available on the website and online. But I wanted to also ask, what are the exclusions? Like who can't be a living donor? Gosh, yes, that's a big question, isn't it? Um, well, there are some obvious things. So let's take some obvious, very simple examples. So you've got to be in good health yourself. Now, good health and being a suitable donor are two different things. So I might be perfectly healthy and then have start to be assessed as a donor and find that I've only got one kidney. That makes me an unsuitable donor because clearly that's not doesn't work if, if I've only got one. Now, that's an extreme example, but you get the idea. Yes. Most often, it's much more subtle than that, that there are a number of things that make a team think, is this the best thing for the person sitting in front of me, for me to recommend that? Now, I can't go into absolutely every exclusion or inclusion criteria, but we have um, some extremely well-evidenced guidance in this country, in the UK, um, and they are produced under the professional society, so the British Transplantation Society and what we call the Renal Association, which is basically the professional association for kidney people. And the British Transplantation Society is, as you would think, for transplant professionals. So they produce these guidance documents looking at all the evidence across the world and say, what is the best thing for all these, you know, to do around this? So in simple terms, we need to know something about everybody's general, you know, the person we're looking at, their general health. Um, and is there anything there that we would worry about? Things like, you know, a history of heart problems or a history of um, a significant family history of cancer, diabetes, high blood pressure, those sorts of things that we need to be thoughtful about. It's difficult to say this absolutely rules people out because, in fact, increasingly, you know, there are different things that we will consider. So, for example, if somebody has high blood pressure, but it's treated in a way that they, they're not requiring very much blood pressure treatment, but they're requiring some, they may still be a suitable donor, but we will do other tests to make sure that we're not um, causing any harm to that individual. So it's all about protecting the donor. That is incredibly important. We know the recipient needs a kidney, but actually, first and foremost, 
that donor is our main concern um, because we want to make sure that it's safe and sensible for us to recommend for them to donate. And that's what it comes down to. And there are various ways we can do that. So that's a roundabout answer to your question, but it it's very individual, which is why it's so important to have those detailed discussions with the living donor team and go through this very explicit process of assessment. So, so you'd have an initial kind of pre-assessment generally with, with a, a specialist nurse who does this most of the time. And I myself do this for our non-directed donors um, in the hospital that I'm still associated with. So, so we would do all of that and, and that would vary slightly from hospital to hospital, but, but that would be a preliminary kind of assessment. What sort of plan could we make for this person? What should we be thinking about carefully? Detailed family history, detailed sort of information about their medical history. And also, really importantly, are they best placed to do this? Is this a time in life, a time in, you know, for them that is right? And that's particularly important in families, because if you have a number of people who would be willing to be considered as a donor, you you would that comes very much into the into the thinking. Um, and it we usually then start with a more detailed investigations and so on, um, looking at the kidneys, how healthy they are, what the blood supply to the kidneys is like, blood tests, urine tests, all that kind of thing on a single donor, somebody, so the first person, the first runner, if you like, if for any reason, then they are not suitable, you might go to the next person. Now, sometimes that can be a bit frustrating for people because they say, well, why don't we just work up six people all at the same time? Well, because actually for those six people, that's quite a lot of effort that they've got to make in order. And it's not absolutely ideal for them to do that. So it has to kind of, it's a partnership, if you like, it's what works. Um, and I suppose really importantly for us is it's almost like turning consent around the other way, because normally when you consent to have an operation, it's because it, you need it for yourself. And living donation is different. This isn't a benefit to the individual, it's the benefit to the person that they're donating to. So it's got to be, you know, all consent should be really transparent, but this needs to be really well informed, really transparent process. So what rules you out? Well, it could be things on the basis of health, things on the basis of where your life is now, things on the basis of what you would like your life to be in future. All of those things come into, come into impact and, and whether you want to do it. And that may change as the idea becomes more embedded. And sometimes people think, gosh, this isn't something that I really want to take on. Or perhaps we find something that is just a little bit more on the borderline of, of you know being suitable and then somebody might say well actually I don't think I want to take that level of risk and that's the kind of discussion that goes on throughout the assessment process so you'll have a detailed medical assessment a detailed surgical assessment um, you'll have coordination and assessment from a living donor coordinator throughout and then when all the clinical stuff has been done you may also see a psychologist or a mental health expert depending upon how different units work um, and when all of that bit's been done, and if you like signed off, then you, there's, a, there's a legal independent assessment. Have we upheld the interests of the donor? Does the donor, are they going in with their eyes open? Do they really understand the implications for them? And that's critically important to those of us working in donation, and that people go in and this is something that they really want to do. And they don't come out afterwards saying, I wish I hadn't donated my kidney. That sounds so amazing because... One of the fears that I hear from people is that if I give a kidney, it's going to affect my health in a negative way that my kidney function might go down. I'm going to become very ill. But from what you're saying, there's actually extensive tests to see whether 
you know, there would be and the legal side of it as well, the psychological side of it as well. So clearly, it's not just a case of someone coming forward and and the team go, oh, great. And they just give their kidney. Clearly, there's a lot of testing and procedure that has to happen first before that's actually possible. So I think just hearing that might give people reassurance and comfort to know that, you know, they're not just going to let you give a kidney because you've got that desire to, but because you're actually physically able to, physically and mentally able to do so safely. So um, I hope that, you know, by hearing that, people have that reassurance now to know that you can only donate if it's absolutely safe for you to do so. That's right. And of course, there are, you know, that can be, that can go both ways, because it can cause frustration to people who just want to get on and do it. Um, But actually, our first obligation, our first duty of care is to the donor to make it as safe as we possibly can. And there is, you know, nothing comes with a cast iron guarantee. And people must be very realistic that this is major surgery, having a kidney out, even if you have keyhole surgery, where, you know, which is, is our, you know, the, the laparoscopic surgery, the, the smallest scar you can have. Um, but all of that, there's still a, an operation that's gone on inside and also the implications for them lifelong. And that is also why we might say no, if we're worried about that. We don't always have every bit of last bit of information, but we can make extremely good clinical judgments on individuals from the information from them, coupled with what we know um, from the literature. So, yes, I think people should be reassured. It's a very thorough process. Um, and that means it may go on for, a, a you know, longer than some people would like. And it may be more. Um, and that may be a frustration. But it, we, that's the way we, it is really critical that we do it. Fantastic. So we've we've covered so many things um, in this interview today. I really feel like we've gained a, a really good understanding of living donation, altruistic donation, pool donation, um, the kind of concerns and fears that people might have around that, and the kind of fears that um, and reservations from people from different communities may have around living donation. So I feel like um, you know we've explored so much so thank you so much for your time today and for sharing so much knowledge with us I just wanted to finally ask you in terms of getting more information you mentioned about the website so could you give the listeners the website addresses so they can check out yes certainly so um the website that that gives you the most information about uh, living donation is three w's organdonation.nhs.uk and then along the top there's a tab that says become a living donor and that if you click on that you'll find chapter and verse on all the information you need and it also takes you through to a series of very short films little snapshots of most of the things that I've been talking about today and in particular if that makes that sort of um, description of the kidney sharing scheme thought that's making my head you know explode then there's a short animation that just shows how it all works. So that's quite helpful. Um, There's also another area on the website called Get Involved, and it links through from the Living Donation pages as well. Um, And that gives you um, all those faith-based materials and those particular things that might be be of interest to people from BAME backgrounds. Um, That's where that particular sort of repository of resources is. So there's quite a lot on that. I'd also 
encourage people to go to the Give a Kidney website, the charity, the three W's, giveakidney.org, because that is the charity that represents living donors. But of course, there are other, the, the other kidney charities like Kidney Care UK, the National Kidney Federation, um, and also the National Bone Transplant Alliance that I spoke about. And they all have resources there that are really tailored to the communities from you know, from people from a BAME background in lots of different ways. And of course, the gift of living donation as well. There's a bit of a confusion there because if you're going to gift of living donation, it sometimes takes you through to an American website, but it's actually um, the, the, the UK-based people golden. So lots of different areas. Um, what we try to do with the NHSBT resources is to use all those other all the other expertise from our patient groups and from our donor groups to inform those resources and to keep the information consistent. The most difficult thing, I think, is mixed messaging. I think that's really hard for patients because you read something on one website and it says something on another. What we try to do with the NHSBT resources is to keep them right up to date and contemporary so that they do lead through to the most consistent messages. But look at that have a look at that. You can always, always have a conversation with people and you can contact those charitable organisations and they're always willing to speak, talk you through things as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for all the information that you've shared today. And I really hope that this generates, like I said, lots of conversation and awareness and maybe even some donors coming forward to save and improve the quality of someone's life. So thank you so much. You're most welcome, Dee. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. And don't forget that you can contact me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Please do subscribe to the podcast and please do tell a friend. New episodes of this podcast are released every Monday. Until next time, take care and choose to live. Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Sharing faith knowledge, hope, and love.